Good morning. So today we continue with the Diamond Sutra book study on chapter 28. We go right into it. <clears throat> Furthermore, Subhuti, if a noble son or daughter took as many worlds as there are grains of sand in the Ganges and covered them with the seven jewels and gave them as a gift to the Tathagatas, the Arhans, the fully enlightened ones, and a Bodhisattva gained an acceptance of acceptance of the selfless, birthless nature of dharmas. The body of merit produced as a result would be immeasurably, infinitely greater. And yet, Subhuti, this fearless Bodhisattva would not obtain a body of merit. The Venerable Subhuti said, But surely, Bhagavan, this Bodhisattva would obtain a body of merit. And the Buddha replied, They would, Subhuti but without grasping it. Thus, it is called obtaining. So, this chapter, if there is a, a high point to the sutra, this is it. It's building up to this chapter, and from this chapter, it slowly winds down until chapter 32. And the point in that is, yes, they would, but without grasping without grasping and that's what we are looking at that's what we are talking about in this sutra bill porter says the buddha has repeatedly considered the merit produced by offerings of unimaginable unimaginable value even the sacrifice of one's own existence and has compared such offerings to the merit produced by understanding and sharing these teachings with others. But his previous examples concerned the practice of learning and explaining as little as a single gata of this sutra. The Buddha now approaches the heart of this teaching as he goes beyond the sutra itself and beyond the mountain, no mountain, mountain dialectic he has used thus far in trying to show the perfection of wisdom in action. So, ease is not ease, right? So, mountain, no mountain, mountain also has been used often in Zen as before, before practicing, mountains are mountains, are rivers are rivers while diving deep and realizing mountains are no longer mountains, rivers are no longer rivers. And then after realization, mountains are mountains and rivers are rivers. This is because it is not, it is. But until we understand is not, is, is always a problem. Or we are always the obstacle. And then he says, he puts aside his Prajna and Dharma eyes and turns to his Buddha eye, as in chapter 18, as he brings us to the mother of Buddhas, which cannot be approached as a perception, but as an experience, the experience and acceptance of the selfless, birthless nature of all Dharmas. Those Bodhisattvas who have just embarked on the Bodhisattva path 
are not capable of enduring such a trauma. Only those at the end of it, which is why the Buddha has waited until now to reveal the essential teaching of the perfection of wisdom. Thus, the, the body of merit of which the Buddha now speaks is, is not the reward body, but the Dharma body, the real body, which bodhisattvas obtain, but obtain without grasping. For once bodhisattvas are able to bear the birthlessness, and to bear the birthlessness, to bear is a very important point here, the birthlessness of all dharmas, how can they be said to obtain anything other than the body they were never without? The body that does not begin to exist, cease to exist, or now exists. Charming titles this chapter, No Possession, No Attachment. I want to go back to uh, what uh, was brought up in chapter 18 about the five eyes and uh, read the short descriptions of each of the eyes so we can make the connection in this chapter. So in chapter 18, uh, they spoke about the five eyes, which are the physical eye, the divine eye, the prajna eye, wisdom, the dharma eye, and the buddha eye. So according to Nagarjuna, the physical eye sees the near but not the far, the front but not the back, the outside but not the inside, the light but not the dark, the top but not the bottom. Because it is obstructed, a bodhisattva seeks the divine eye and it progresses from there. And then Nagarjuna says, the divine eye sees only those provisionally named things that result from the combination of causes and conditions and not their true appearance, not their emptiness or their formlessness, not their non-existence, their birthlessness or their deathlessness. The same holds for their past, their present or their future. Hence, a bodhisattva moves on to seek the prajna, the divine eyes, Bill Porter says, perceives object in the realm of form. The prajna eye, as Nagarjuna says, does not see beings for all common and differentiating characteristics are extinguished. It is free of all attachments and immune to all dharmas, including prajna itself. But because it does not distinguish anything, the prajna eye cannot liberate other beings. Hence, a bodhisattva gives rise to the dharma eye. And then Bill Porter says, the prajna eye perceives objects in the realm of formlessness. Therefore, we move on to the dharma eye. The dharma eye enables a bodhisattva to cultivate a dharma and to realize a path as well as to know the expedient means by which other beings can do so. So this, is, this speaks of Upaya. The Dharma, however, is not omniscient in its awareness of the expedient means for liberating beings. Hence, a Bodhisattva seeks the Buddha. And also about the Dharma, the Dharma perceives the means to liberate others 
and is only possessed by bodhisattvas, while the prajna sees the emptiness of all things, the dharmai discerns their myriad differences. While the prajna is concerned with the truth of emptiness, the dharma is concerned with the truth of provisional reality, the reality of appearances. Thus, with their dharma eye, bodhisattvas sees the kind of cultivation and level of attainment of other beings as well as the means to liberate them. So this is where it becomes practical. Or this is where realization becomes actualized for the sake of all others. And then from there we move on to the Buddha eye. The Buddha eye sees everything, including whatever is seen by the other four eyes. It not only sees things in the present, it also sees them in the past and in the future. With their prajna eye, Buddha sees the emptiness of all things, and with the Dharma eye, they see their underlying appearances. But with their Buddha eye, they see the middle path between these two. So neither form nor formlessness as a fixed position, whereby the doctrines of emptiness and Dharma reality merge into the path of non-duality. Non-duality between form and formlessness. Shakyamuni acquired this eye the night of his enlightenment. Thus, it is only possessed or available to Buddhas. So in this chapter, the Buddha speaks of seeing through his Buddha eye. So it, it puts it all together or it connects the dots that we have uh, looked at up to now. Winnag says, great minds achieve the acceptance of things because they are free of attachments. Their worldly merit is so great, why would they want to possess anything? Thus follows a chapter on no possession and no attachment. So I want to move on to uh, Bill Porter's commentary. In this sutra, the Buddha focuses on three of the six perfections. The first perfection is charity, dana paramita. The third perfection is acceptance of forbearance or forbearance, ksanti paramita. And the sixth perfection is prajna paramita, wisdom. Here the Buddha merges all three. For when we give something, we must be able to bear its loss and accept its absence. Thus, Charity and acceptance are two aspects of the same practice. It is the perfection of wisdom, however, that transforms this twofold practice. For it is by means of wisdom that we realize that the elements of practice are empty, that there is no gift, no giver, no recipient, and thus no practice. And this is referring to the triple emptiness. No giver, no gift, no recipient. Not only is there not now any practice, there never has been any practice, nor will there ever be any practice. That's why we often say there is no Zen to be found here. And yet, instead of resulting in no merit, such realization results in obtaining a body of merit beyond the limits of conception. But a body of merit that is not obtained because such a body does not exist. 
for the, the hand cannot grasp itself or the eye cannot see itself, the knife cannot cut itself and so on. By realizing and accepting that all dharmas have no self, that they are not real, a bodhisattva gives up attachments to all created things. And only by giving up such pervasive, all-consuming attachments can a bodhisattva liberate all beings. Beings who do not now exist have never existed and never will exist. In later, more developed descriptions of the Bodhisattva progress, such as that the Dhammika uh, Sutra and, and then the Anuttamas, Anuttapatika Dharma, Ksanti, or acceptance of birthlessness, it is said to characterize the eighth of the ten gates that culminate with Buddhahood and which is the subject of the next chapter. So, I'd like to open it up here and see how we feel about this chapter before we move on. So, no attachment, right? No attachment leads to understanding Dana Paramita or to really understanding Dana Paramita. Dana Paramita as a natural expression of being that can only arise when we realize that there is nothing there to begin with then that naturally moves on to how do we actualize it? What is, the, what is the way to manifest nothingness? And nothingness also obviously contains nothing to, nothing to uh, uh, push away, nothing to reject, nothing to go against, nothing to go for. So... Who wants to speak first? If you have questions, if you want to comment. So we are going to begin with uh, Raisan. And he knows that. Mm. Uh, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Well, at the moment, that phrase, acceptance of birthlessness, um, I don't know, it's just um, extremely profound for me at the moment. Um, I don't know why it's hitting me so strongly, but um, um, this sense of a, um, a provisional self that keeps going, knowing full well that um, there isn't any self. Um, I, I mean, this seems to be what the Diamond Sutra keeps hitting us over the head with over and over and over and over and over. Um, and that um, at this moment, that particular phrase is just seems very um, powerful as a, um, as a place of realizing that um, um, dimension of our existence. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's it at the moment. Uh, watching this incredible snow falling is um, um, also a, a kind of nice um, environment for um, comparing these different realms of, of uh, uh, relation to everything that's happening. Mm -hmm. um, 
Thank you. So that acceptance is also referred to as a trauma of realization. It is a traumatic experience. (laughs) Totally. Uh, Yeah. So why is that a traumatic experience? Anyone? Joe? Did you raise your hand? We have you can have to unmute. Well, the trauma is seeing things as they are, not as we wish them to be, not as um they ought to be, not as they were, not as they will be, just as they are. It's traumatic. So accepting that. Yeah. And not pushing it away and not grasping, just being with it. The trauma of not grasping. Right. Or pushing away. Yeah. Or rejecting. Yes. Right. Yeah. It goes against everything we have come to deeply, deeply trust. That's right. So we have to go through the trauma in order to get to the other side. That's right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And Kai? Um hearing y'all speak about this, uh, uh, something, a question that comes to mind is, well, then, like, what is trauma and what is being damaged or broken or or affected in this way? I don't have an answer. It's just that question's arising. Maybe the trauma has to do with nothing is can ever be damaged. The thought that there is possibility for damage, right, keeps us in a very confined reality, sense of reality. And when when the bottom is dropped and there is nothing there that can be damaged, that perfection is inherent because it's not about a feeling or it's not about what happened in the past or how I feel about it today. It's just the way it is. Uh, we are we are deeply vested in in a sense of self, and the sense of self is also deeply vested in an idea of holding on or creating and holding on some to something, right? And that something has to do with uh, often with a belief that I am damaged, mm-hmm. and it can be very traumatic to realize there is no such thing as damaged. So, thank you. Uh, somebody raised their hand. Yogan, did you raise your hand? Okay. Sugyoku. Sugyoku and Yogan, right? So Yogan then Sugyoku. Okay. Uh, you can have to unmute. Sugyoku can go first. That's okay. You already unmuted. So go ahead. I can mute and unmute. It's okay. All right. So um, no, I just got some feelings and ideas while that chapter was being read i um i was raised catholic so um there are you know different sayings of jesus that actually came to me and um it was just in in terms of uh in terms of giving in terms of charity um and how that changes for me uh just 
when um, when Jesus said, uh, when somebody asks for your coat, give him your shirt as well. And that just kind of gives a different feeling for me um, and how that would create trauma and how, how there's, um, or not create trauma. You know what I mean? Like having to give something up mm-hmm. uh, creates trauma and, and knowing that there's nothing to give up can create trauma too, if you're attached to it. Um, but giving everything up just because it's not there that's what came to mind. That's all I have right now. But I thought that was really uh, interesting. Thank you. So to realize that there's nothing there, often we may be uh, vested in, in, in the gift, thinking that the gift will, uh, well, I'm the one who is giving and you're the one who is receiving and that will buy me something, that will uh, elevate me. Uh, and then realizing that it's not possible. It's just not possible. So there is a, a great deal of letting go in that. Thank you. Sigyoku. Oh, just uh, to me, it's uh, the trauma of, in this case, the imagined trauma of um, there not being any structure. Um, and Pema Chodron talks a lot about groundlessness. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the fear of that, uh, the um, emptiness of your opinions, your ideas about yourself, your ideas about this, your ideas about that, mm-hmm. your uh, habitual feelings. Um, mm-hmm. So that's it. Thank you. So the trauma of realizing that the structure is no structure. The structure we create is just our own creation. So there is the analogy of falling and then while falling, you know, finding a handle to grasp, to grab onto, grab a hold onto, and then feeling good about that. But then opening the eyes, seeing that the handle is not bolted to anything, that the handle is actually falling with us or we are falling with it. And that's, that could be a very traumatic experience because we, we for, for quite a while, have come to, to trust the belief that what we're holding on is bolted to something. Mm. And realizing that it is not bolted to anything because there's nothing there that it can be bolted onto. It's nothing but an idea. We, as a fixed me, I am as a fixed me is nothing but an idea. So there is that trauma, but there's also an immense sense of freedom that comes right after comes up right after the trauma. But we do have to. There is a, a lot. There is a sense of loss actually in that, and I think that we we can't bypass that. There is a sense of, there is even more a sense of mourning a self saying goodbye to what I think I am or what I think you are. It's the same thing. Thank you, Sugiyoku. I think Vince, yeah, raise the hand. Go ahead. I just, I thought that um, it was interesting because I think that part of 
the trauma or the idea of being damaged or broken um, and like what that is mm-hmm. kind of comes from having an attachment to the words themselves being negative. And like, of course, you know, there is the actual feeling of, you know, trauma with within what happens in, in daily life that does hurt and feels deep in, in you know, ourselves. Um, but it's similar. I think that what came up for me was uh, things like when you break something, um, like a bowl or a mug or even, you know, whatever, um, and you tend to believe that we have a, con- a connotation that once it's broken, it's useless. Mm-hmm. And so we don't want to be useless. Uh, and we and we kind of grasp onto the idea that we aren't. <laughs> when in reality, um, even as a, even a mug that's broken can be useful, you know, it might not be useful in the same way, um, but it could become something different. And the only way that it could become that thing that's different mm-hmm. and possibly even more useful is um, if it broke in the first place, kind of like the idea of needing a lot of pressure. And I guess in that case, it would be trauma to make diamonds or whatever. I, I know that typically, like, I don't know the actual process, but they tend to talk a lot about, you know, having to have a lot of pressure to get to, you know, this other thing. Um, and so it's kind of, we, we tend to have a bad connotation of change at times. And it's mostly because of those words. And I think that although they are real mm-hmm. in, in something that we feel, um, the idea that it's wrong is, I think, what has gotten me to push away change, I think. So mm-hmm. that was, that's it. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you. So, so the trauma uh, is referring to a sense of shock. Right, it's 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 a it's a it's a shocking realization. Is shocking, right? And it includes everything. Of course, it includes the the, the feelings before, the feelings after, but there is a shock in that, right? And that's the point. And it doesn't mean that after that there's no great sense of elation. It's just that there's nothing to grab. There's nothing to grasp. Thank you. Who's next? Yes, Kakuo. Good morning. Hi. Um, so I like to think about it in terms of Buddha nature. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel like there's, well, in the way that I kind of understand it, there's this thing, the personality, you know, this, our psychology, our personality, our, the name that we were given at birth and all that stuff. And, and, and that part that stuff that being suffers, mm-hmm. you know, and experiences trauma. And then at some point we might, you know, discover our Buddha nature or the oneness or whatever, you, whatever you want to call it, something that's not that personality. Mm-hmm. And that thing, mm-hmm. which everybody has altogether, doesn't, doesn't have trauma. Does that, does yeah. that make sense? That's how I like to look at it. So you're connecting uh, past trauma to this kind of trauma. Uh, so the trauma of realization can help us see that the trauma of the past may not have as much power on us because there's nothing fixed, right? So the trauma of realization can be uh, a way to heal from traumas of the past, right? Because the trauma of the past or the me of now is identified with the trauma of the past. 
So when, when we realize that the Miof now is not fixed, what does that do to identification with the trauma of the past? Right? So is there such a thing as healing in the first place? What is to be healed? Healing, in this case, uh, healing is, is, is akin to realization. Seeing that there is nothing there to be healed, you are healed. Oh. Realizing that there's nothing to realize is realization. Oh. <laughs> right? So, so seeing that there is no damaged person because there is no person. So the idea of damage is, is no more than an idea. Yeah. So things like did happen. It's transformation. Things did happen in the past. The, the, that's mm -hmm. undeniable. But who is identified with that now? Mm. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. Thank you. Anyone else raise the hand? I can't see the uh, Brian. Did you raise the hand? No. Okay. Okay. Mukan. Hey, how's it going? Um, yeah, I think you know. I'm going to say these words, and I don't mean them necessarily in the conventional sense, but I think in a lot of these situations, talking about trauma and realization and, you know, um, giving up uh, structure and things of that nature, it's very easy to see them in such extreme circumstances mm -hmm. uh, or examples where I think that there's oftentimes a lot of lessons and the more subtle things, the things that we don't think mean anything to us. I often think about, you know, the saying that something that means nothing to you could mean everything to someone else. And I think we're trying, we're approaching this from a very insular ego centered kind of position. When in a lot of cases, this act is done in concert with others uh, within our lives, whether it's answering the phone call, you know, a phone call in the middle of the night or, or, or grabbing coffee with somebody or, you know, things that we might uh, disregard as, as, effortless or it's not a big deal you know uh, how often do we say that in in the face of somebody who maybe genuinely speaking is saying thank you for for being there for me for holding space and we say that's nothing at all you know and i, I think that yeah the, the things that we give freely uh that that feel effortless or or don't hold as much meaning to us i think that there's equal amounts of truth if not more so in those moments that can tell us a lot other than the particularly emotionally aggrieved uh, exchanges that we have within ourselves at times. Mm -hmm. um, it's just something I think about a lot more so than the, why did the, you know, obvious, the obvious opportunities of why did this elicit such an extreme response or reaction mm -hmm. in me is a, is, an, is a good opportunity. But if we're trying to be open to every moment and, and everything and every subtlety and to, you know, I think we said was that, um, you know, look with our ears and hear with our eyes kind of thing. I think it needs to be applied to every single subtle moment. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. So, right. So, so the, the, the joy of giving in such a way, right? The joy of giving to realize um, 
to realize how much is opened up when we realize, right? And then uh, to see to see moments like that, as you describe, as opportunities to to deepen that, right? Yeah, thank you. So, shall we move on, or yeah, thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Um, thank you very much for all the sharing. I think it was um, great listening to it. Um, what um, I was thinking about realization and, and kind of the shock that is, uh, I think, you know, the hardest part though, and I think it's part of the shock, and that's why it's probably shocking many times, it's not shocking once, is that is what's really rough and tough to do is um, to actualize realization. Um, in, you know, realization is just kind of a brief moment where we see through, we, we kind of look at the mirror and we see there is nobody. And, uh, and, and the seeing through is, is phenomenally powerful and it's shocking and it has this trauma. And we're talking about that kind of moment where we we truly see, and, and and we really don't know what to do with it. Um, and, and that's the traumatic experience, at least for me. Because like, okay, so what, what do I do now? What do I do with this understanding? Um, and the practicing of that understanding, the practicing of things, of, of doing the same, but when the mountains are mountains again, um, it, it is really a practice that is longer uh, that you will assume, and 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 it's a, it's the practice of the whole lifetime. Mm -hmm. um, that actualization of what you just saw, actualization of of this understanding of how how you do everything now with that new understanding of what's really going on, mm -hmm. and and not. Like like this person that was saying, you know, when he was calling, um, you know, not be fooled by others, you know, not be fooled by by the permanent um, sensation that you need to grasp again mm -hmm. to become full. Uh, because we that's 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 what we tend to do. We you know, mm -hmm. we we tend to grasp again because I mean we feel like this emptiness is not not a good place to be in sometimes, you know, and so, so we grasp with something. Mm -hmm. And um, so so that's what I was thinking is that, you know, the toughest, I mean, that's why the body of merit is infinite and it's not a body of merit is because you're just, you really need to actualize the realization. It's not just a thing that is um, a given after you see, mm -hmm. you know, and it's, it's, a, it's a hard work and it's a body of merit of that hard work of being permanently actualizing that knowledge, knowing that is not in, you know, that that's, that's empty, it's selfless, and it's, uh, but that is, uh, and I, I don't know, I just wanted to share that. I mean, I kind of, I was, I was listening to, to it very intently. I think, you know, the, the sharing was, was very powerful. And, and uh, my, my trauma or my situation of, of how to deal with it is that, how do I uh, actualize this understanding that every now and then I kind of, that, let my others fool me because um, sometimes I knowingly I allow them to fool me mm -hmm. because it's it's sometimes it feels just kind of easier mm -hmm. that way and um, so uh, that's that's what I wanted to share.
Thank you. So, so at, at moments or glimpses of realization, to realize that there is realization, but there is nobody who has realized, right? That opens it up. And not to be fooled by moments of realization and then grasp them, grasp the moments, grasp the experience. There are different experiences that we go through. And as long as we, we don't hold on to them, as long as we don't uh, fixate or identify, then they naturally actualize. They become, in a way, realization, moments of realization become the fuel of our moment-by-moment -moment activities without realizing that they become the fuel. When we realize, oh yeah, I'm going to use that later, then it becomes something. That's why Dogen said, Buddhas do not know that they're Buddhas. The knowing that you are a Buddha gets in the way of actualizing Buddhahood. It's that. It's the knowing that creates a fixed sense of me. That's why not knowing is such a, an important aspect of practice. As long as not knowing is, is being practiced, then it works. It manifests. So to not be fooled by moments of realization... Also, to not be fooled by moments of uh, stupidity or foolishness, of, of being trapped, of get, feeling stuck. It's equally dangerous, right? Both are equally dangerous. Because both can give us the illusion of a fixed sense of self. So, thank you. All right, I'm going to move on. Uh, couple more paragraphs to, uh, to read from this uh, from the commentary and then uh, before we move on to the next chapter we can see if uh, anybody wants to share anything else Chifo says all dharmas must be selfless but people are incapable of selflessness because they are incapable of acceptance if they can't be accepting how can they be selfless but only through selflessness can they become accepting all the other 5,000 words in this sutra merely explain this view, which comprise the Buddha's essential teaching. So if you want to read one chapter in this sutra, read that one. Bill Porter says, In this chapter, the Buddha finally addresses the true nature of the Bodhisattva's body of merit. Previously, in chapter 16, the Buddha said, Bodhisattvas produce and obtain a body of merit. But in chapter 19, he declared that the only reason he spoke of a body of merit was because there was no body of merit. In chapter 16 and 19, however, the body of merit of which he spoke of was the result of karma and for that reason contained no self-nature. Here, the body of merit is not the result of karma. It is no body of merit because it is born out of the realization that no body exists. This is our first glimpse of the Dharma body as seen through the Buddha eye. Right? And, and as, as we said before, the Buddha eye contains, encompasses all the other four eyes. It, it, it gradually builds up and leads to that, the ability to see without seeing or to hear without hearing.
the non the non attainment of this body or the attainment of this no body begins and ends with the bodhisattva's resolution to liberate all beings and such a resolution only works if it is free of perceptions of liberator liberated and liberation as in there is realization but nobody is there to realize only such perceptionless resolve leads to the realization that all dharmas have no self that all dharmas whether they are beings bodies or buddhas do not now exist have never existed nor will they ever exist thus the bodhisattva's resolution turns out to be no resolution and the body of merit produced by such a resolution turns out to be no body it is this body freed of all attachments including the attachments to its own existence which is the true body of every buddha such a body cannot be grasped for there is no way to get one's hand on one's mind or one's mind around it it is this body that is the subject of the next chapter so there is nothing there to realize and there is nobody that can realize Dabo, you want to say a few words before we move on okay can everyone hear me good all right so you know there's a lot of words in here right a lot of words so you know how do how do i make sense of of all of this um you know the the last three eyes to me are very important uh, for my understanding the prajna eye um the dharma eye and the buddha eye right the prajna eye we see the world of emptiness with the prajna eye we see that all dharmas are empty mm-hmm. which is tough in of its, in and of itself to actually achieve that state right um with the uh, dharma eye we see the world of provisional reality how we as bodhisattvas can you know use the dharma to help others and then with the buddha eye we achieve that state of non-duality by merging emptiness with dharma reality right it's very intellectually it's 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 pretty clear but f- for me the the hardest part is that is that prajna eye that emptiness um because it's obviously it's the the core of of what we do right and it's super counterintuitive you know how can the pen be empty i'm using the pen i'm writing with it how can it be empty right so there there's one sort of statement in here it's in one of the previous chapters it's it's not important where it is but um billboard billboard says thus in the teaching in teaching the dharma there was nothing the buddha could teach all he did was protect beings from misconceptions by teaching them not to give birth to views and to get rid of their attachments mm-hmm. students should realize that this is all he did mm-hmm. right and for me that that is so critical because that is the gateway to emptiness right to rid ourselves of our misconceptions and our attachments to things mm-hmm. because once we're not attached to something we can use it um you know freely. Mm-hmm. 
So this is where this kind of all leads me because I don't know about some of you, but there's just so much going on here and there's so many different ways that the Buddha says the same thing that it, for me, it kind of gets confusing. So I kind of like to strip it down. And the core of it is to rid ourselves of these attachments that we create and these misconceptions that we overlay on the things in our lives. So right. th that's where I'm kind of coming down on it right now. Yeah. Um, yeah, I hope that makes sense. I hope it's helpful. Thank you. It actually does make sense. But, you know, the, the, the issue with understanding emptiness is the, the, the conceptualization of it, right? The problem with emptiness is not what it is or what it's not. The problem with that is the way we try to, the way we try to understand it. That's the issue. That's the barrier, right? Because what we're talking about is a non-conceptual emptiness and this is where then the barrier is the conceptual emptiness we hold on to conceptual emptiness and we try to understand it but what we're trying to understand is what we ourselves create we are trying to understand what we create and we walk around in circles we are trapped in our own bubble in a way because there's nothing right, to understand. The misconceptions that he refers to, the misconceptions and, exactly. and the attachments. Exactly, things. right. Exactly. And and the point in that is as long as as long as I'm creating, I am trapped by my own creation. And I'm trying to free myself from what I create. While trying to free myself, I create more of the same. Because I'm trying to conceptually get out of conception. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I think Sogan will agree with you with that uh, barrier and he's smiling. <laughs> you want to say something about that? Yeah, that that's uh, uh good morning everyone. Good morning. Uh, this this uh, uh resonates with me as well because the whole emptiness problem uh and the mind repeatedly kind of reaches out and tries to frame it as something uh, or some, I mean, try to try to get a handle of some kind on it. Is it a void? Is it, is it, a, a, you know, just blankness or something, you know, and it's kind of like hitting a brick wall because there's nothing you can, you can really do with it. Um, and what you said, Roshi, I think is helpful is that, you know, it's not productive to try to, create a concept in your head of what it is and then try to actualize that mm -hmm. right um so you are kind of i mean it does feel at times that you're going around in circles but it's it's hard not to because that is the on the one hand is it's it's held up this is the ostensible goal right, right. The, the experience of shunyata and so, so it's hard not to sort of reach out towards it. Um, but the only way you can do that is by creating another concept. And then, like you said, you end up going around in circles. Right. So the thinking mind is creating the, bar the conceptual barrier and then and the thinking mind is trying to solve it. Right. That's, that's why we end up with, walking around within a bubble. The mind yeah. cannot cannot resolve what itself, what it creates. Right. 
right? But as long as we try to create, as long as we try to resolve something, okay, let's put it this way. As long as we are trying to resolve an issue that does not exist, there is an issue, right? If I, if I am trying to resolve a, a, an issue, if I'm trying to take down a barrier that essentially does not exist, by trying to take it down, I fortify it. Because I'm saying that, of course, there is something there. Of course, there's a barrier. And I need to find a way to take it down. Well, how do we take down what's not there to begin with? Right? We, we end up fighting, we end up fighting nothing, but that nothing becomes something. So emptiness becomes, becomes very firm, very stuck. The idea of emptiness becomes stuck. Meanwhile, emptiness is all we are. Because we are constantly moving and changing, you know, because we are not fixed, nothing is fixed, then we are nothing but emptiness. Remember, emptiness does not negate anything, right? It doesn't negate you, your family, what you like to do, riding your bike, taking your dog on walks. It doesn't negate any of that. It's just saying, you know, don't fixate. Or it's saying you cannot fixate. You can only imagine that you can. Therefore, we are in a bubble. Yeah, that's that's a helpful um, way of thinking about it. I think is to see it as a, a transience, right? A form of the, the transience that means there's no there's no thingness there, yeah, because of transience, which leads to a sense of liberation. It leads to freedom. So after the trauma of or the shock of realizing, oh my God, there's nothing there. I, what I'm standing on is not fixed, is not firm. That's that trauma, that's that shock. But after that shock comes this, wait a minute, that means all, all 10 directions are wide open. If I'm not what I think I am, then I am not hindered. I'm only hindered by what, what, what I think I am, right? And as long as there, this is not there as something fixed, that, that means... So again, moves in all 10 directions, right? Yeah. So right after that comes that sense of freedom. Yeah, I, I, I feel like there's still a, an experiential dimension to it that, uh, but, it's, but it's helpful to think of it that way. Which is, what, which is what was brought up in, you know, in the commentary, that it has to be experienced. Yeah. It cannot be, that's the point of, we cannot conceptualize conceptions. We cannot free ourselves from conceptualization by further conceptualizing. How is that possible? We can't think our way out of it. Or we cannot figure out reality through thought or through mind. It just doesn't work. It's, it's, a, it's a problem that can't be solved on the plane of its own conception. Yes, that's what Einstein said, right? You cannot solve a problem that the mind created with the mind. Right. Right, I'm paraphrasing, but anyway. Yeah. Uh, before we move on, Hoji, did you want to say something? I see your hand is raised. Oh, I just wanted to say that, uh, you know, we, we're not 
raised or taught to uh, not think. You know, we're, we're rewarded for, for thinking and use your head and, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and, and achieving uh, with our intellectual capacity. Yeah. Um, and what, what comes to mind for me is a, a line from the Tao Te Ching, actually, which, you know, he just says, I'm like an idiot. My mind is so empty. And so, you know, I've, I've, I've practiced that. I've tried that on, you know, and, uh, and, you know, allowed, allowed that practice to subvert my ego, if you will. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it, and it, and it's fun and I get to play with all of it. And, you know, for the most part, I just don't worry anymore. I feel like we are all so incredibly blessed to be here and to have this practice. And I really allow myself to just rest in the practice. So, you know, when I have situations, I had one this week, I was giving away uh, some, some stones that I had collected and uh, to this woman. And she, I, you know, I gave her a lot of uh, beautiful, you know, stuff. <laughs> and she's going through uh, the, the, fire agate and she found uh this perfect little rosebud um which you know nature makes and um she asked if she could have it and i like like totally cringed inside of course i said yes you know um uh and let her have it but i'll tell you you know i had a couple of pangs uh of of like of trauma it it was the trauma of you know of, of facing my clinging Mm -hmm. and I'll just share this, this one, um, other story. Uh, I, I'm seem to be being called back to, um, some chaplaincy work and, uh, what I have experienced directly is, um, you know, as, as consciousness leaves the body and the senses dissolve one into the other. Um, that could be, uh, I've, you know, I've noticed, uh, people and animals, um, experience, you know, abject terror. And, and this happened to a dog actually, um, that I was, uh, sitting with as it was passing. Um, it lost its sight all of a sudden, and it was just very terrifying. And the owner was terrified also. And um, and while I knew, you know, ultimately, uh, you know, what's on the other side of that, um, you know, the owner didn't and opted to um, shoot it, you know, because he loved it. It was an act of love, and he was just, you know, he's we just don't understand that process. And, um, and while I feel, I, I feel, you know, my job is to hold this consciousness, but 
but I'm not really holding anything and I'm not really doing anything except being completely present. And uh, just this one last piece, the first time I ever sat with someone that passed away, I was with um, um, an, an older woman that had been, um, you know, somewhat of a mentor. And I was, I think maybe 22. And uh, she looks at me and uh, after he, he passed, and there was this enormous energetic release. And she looked at me and she said, this is just like birth. Mm. And that really put things into perspective. So I'm just glad I have this practice that I, that I can just give myself over to and, and let go and trust and trust the form that it is and mm-hmm. let go. Thank you. Get out of me. Thank you. So, so the, the point of acceptance is, as was brought up before, uh, we, if we cannot, if we're unwilling to accept, uh, we're stuck. We are maintaining a sense of stuckness and, and to accept means to accept. Right, it's not. It doesn't matter what happens. The point, the the advice of acceptance is always essential. So we're gonna move on to chapter twenty nine. Uh, we may not be able to finish it today, but we'll begin. Furthermore, Subhuti, if anyone should claim that the Tathagata goes or comes or stands or sits or lies on a bed. Subhuti, they do not understand the meaning of my words. And why not? Subhuti, those who are called Tathagatas do not go anywhere, nor they do, they do come from anywhere. Thus, they are called Tathagatas, Arhans, fully enlightened ones. Now, you may remember the four modes of the Buddha, lying down, sitting, standing, walking. So in those four modes, the question is, who is coming, who is going? Who is sitting down? Who is getting up? Who is walking around? Bill Porter says, from the very beginning of this sutra, the focus has been on the Buddha's body. And this sutra can be read as a meditation on the Buddha's body. But which body? It has sometimes seemed like the Buddha has been playing the old shell game with Subhuti. Now you see me, now you don't. Under which shell is the real Buddha? As early as chapter 5, the Buddha asked Subhuti if he could see his body. And with, with this koan, he began Subhuti's education in the perfection of wisdom. Or we can say our education in the perfection of wisdom. Obviously, the Buddha was not referring to his physical body, which Subhuti knew was empty of any self-nature and merely an apparition. But to which body was the Buddha referring? And why did he refer to bodies at all? Subhuti was known for his attachment to emptiness. Hence, the Buddha sought to lead him beyond the emptiness by considering his reward body, which is a reflection of the Buddha's selflessness. The Buddha also urged Subhuti to cultivate his own reward body, which he called his body of merit, 
by resolving to liberate all beings without attachment to any being or any self. However, while this selflessness is the necessary cause of such bodies, selflessness itself turns out to be birthless. No self has ever existed. Hence, one cannot transcend what does not exist. And this is what we mean by how do we get beyond a barrier that is not there to begin with? How do we take down a wall or a division that does not exist? We often speak of non-duality. Why do we speak of non-duality? If not because we ourselves create an idea of duality. We don't have to create non-duality. What we have to do is stop dividing or stop creating idea of self and other. Thus, the Buddha reward body and the Bodhisattva's body of merit turn out to be no bodies, no bodies that arise from this teaching. If we wish to follow in the Buddha's footsteps, we need to find the Buddha's real body, his uncreated, indestructible body, his diamond body. In this chapter, the Buddha finally lifts the shell. Charming titles this chapter as the utter stillness of perfect deportment. And Wineng said, going and coming, sitting and lying down, all accord with reality. Thus follows a chapter on the utter stillness of a Buddha's perfect deportment. Te Ching says, though it has been said that there is no self or recipient of merit, when the Tathagata appeared walking, standing, sitting, or lying down, was this not the Tathagata's self? This is because the view that his three bodies were both one and many has not yet been eliminated, and because the undifferentiated nature of the Dharma body has not yet been understood. So... I want to stop there and uh, maybe we can have a short discussion and we will the next time uh, pick up from where we left off. So, what do you see in this chapter? Where are we at? Do you have questions? Do you have thoughts you want to share? What does it mean not coming, not going? Not departing, not arriving? How about uh, Tyreo? Good morning. You've been quiet today. Where are you going? Um, well, coming and going, sitting, lying, are sort of, you know, goalful activities. In in my in my estimate, mm -hmm. and to sort of go back to the previous chapter. You know, it's, uh, you know, it's that fixation on ideas of uh, that will inevitably get one in trouble. Um, it's like, uh, you know, it's like, oh, um, you know, I just looked out the window and saw a couple of snowflakes arguing about where to land because uh, they didn't want to land in the wrong place, you know. So, um, you know, obviously, you know, if, if we could relax and not argue amongst ourselves or 
Actually, um, maybe a, another way to put this is uh, our, our teacher Wuda in the tea tradition um, talks about, um, you know, like a single cell of your skin doesn't stand up and go like, well, that's it, you know, I'm out of here, you know, I'm tired of being a part of the skin, you know, and it, and it just, you know, pops up and, and walks away. But, you know, it's so amazing how we sort of take on this idea that we're an independent self and not realizing how we're a cell and a consistent sort of existence tissue. Mm -hmm. And, um, but along with that, you know, we then we can't have this selfless, uh, you know, idea of, well, I'm going to go, you know, I'm going to go off and be my own cell all alone under myself. Mm -hmm. So, so how do we connect the previous chapter with this one in terms of <clears throat> not living, not arriving? Nobody arrives, nobody goes anywhere, ever. What does it mean? We can't go anywhere. Are we stuck? Yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> so Sado is going to answer. Good morning, Sado. Good morning, everyone. Uh, the only thing I can think of as far as not coming and going, lying and standing is we are always exactly where we're supposed to be. So we can never leave and we can never arrive because at the moment we're in, we are where we're supposed to be. Like the snowflake falling and mm -hmm. all these other uh, examples that we've given. That's, that's what I would say. So when we're done here, are you not going outside to shovel the snow? Yes, but I'm not going out there now. So I'm not going and I'm not coming because I am here. Uh, and moment by moment, I will be exactly where I'm supposed to be is kind of what I get out of, uh, a lot of, a lot of the discussions that we have with Zen. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's one of the things that is for me, it's confusing. And it, at the same time, it makes a lot of sense that, you know, you can, you can never be anywhere else. Mm -hmm. You are always right here. So. Uh, we just need to get comfortable with where we're at and where we are and uh, and just deal with relations and issues and whatever is going on at that moment and basically be comfortable with the decisions we make at that time that they'll carry forward in the proper way. Right. Thank you. You can't go there because you're not here. If you were here, you could go there. Right? You can get up and go over there. And then there you are. But if you're not here, how can you go there? If we connect it to the previous chapter. Right? And if there's nobody here to begin with, who's going to go anywhere? Right. right? Well, that, that's the one aspect. Not the, not the one, but that's one of the many aspects of Zen practice that I don't understand. Right? I, you know, I... 
this discussion we've been having about emptiness, mm-hmm. you know, getting back to the conceptual of it, I understand where Zen is taught, you know, expressing this idea and that if we don't create the boundary, there will be no boundary. And that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. But, uh, this idea that there is no self is, you know, that's my emptiness. I can't, I keep creating a boundary there. Right. Okay. That's good. Now you know you're creating a boundary. That's a good place to be, right? So knowing that I create a boundary maybe gives me the freedom to not take it so seriously. Right? Yes. So then, then there is freedom. And the, the, the point of, you know, all the 10 directions are wide open means there is no coming and going. Now is time to go out and shovel snow. Right? It doesn't negate the need to shovel snow and it doesn't negate the fact that there is that doing. In that doing, there is nothing but that doing. All yes. there is is the doing. Right? Yeah, and that, that I was trying to say that poorly was yes, when the time no, comes no, to you shovel, said it's fine. Yeah. I just go and I shovel. Yes, you, you said yeah. it's just fine, yes. Right, because all there is is that, right? So wherever you are, there's nothing else because everything is, is tied together or skewed by the same nothingness, right? Everything is interlaced by the same non-essence, right? And because of that, we are free. Actually, we are free to fully experience. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. not, nothing is missing, right? Yeah. So we are, right. we are free to fully experience. Thank you. You said it well. It's good. Thank you. Uh, Daikyo, good morning again. Hey, um, good morning. I wanted to, um, I mean, I, I think the main problem we have with this coming and going um, is that we overload the word I. You know, we, we create, I mean, I, we use I all the time and, and we overload it. We, we think there is something there. So we keep saying that, we, I mean, I go, I come in, I go. I mean, and, and, and like, well, you just said it. I mean, like there's nobody there to begin with. So I is a word that should be used, I mean, as a descriptor and with the knowledge that there is a descriptor, not a real object behind I. Um, and so, so that is kind of what, what this is referring to. It's like, there is no I to begin with, so there is no movement to begin with because, you know, not because the movement, I mean, it's not, the movement happens, sorry, it's the I that doesn't move, you know, it's the movement that happens. So, so it's not that you, we are going to go shovels. No, shoveling will happen. The snow will be removed. Um, and, and, and that is kind of the relationship I see, or at least how, mm. how I face that. I mean, it's, it's, it's the fixation of I am the one doing it that creates the separation that is the problem usually because we grasp to that I doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and in children's now there's not a big deal, but in many other things, it's like, well, I, I did that. Mm-hmm. And, and if that creates pride, creates this or create that or create grasping of whatever object. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, I mean, we, whatever we accomplish with the eye. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's um, that's what I wanted to say. Thank you. So we're gonna finish with that. But this is this is relating to related to the the statement. 
with the saying, active all day, he does nothing. Active all day, he does nothing. So with that, we should all go shovel snow, except for Natalie. I don't think she's going to go shovel any snow <laughs> in Bermuda. But thank you all. Okay, so we will continue next time from uh, where we left off in this chapter. Thank you.